Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I teach Old Testament, and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Paul Jean, our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, and for the first time in the life of this podcast, Dr. Grace Sutanto in the flesh in Washington, D.C., sitting across the table from me and not on a screen on Zoom. Welcome, Grace Sutanto. It is good to be here in the flesh, indeed. It's good to have you here. Now, it's not a normal morning, uh, everyone. This is, a, this is a snow morning, so the roads are treacherous, um, so it's hard to get into campus. So we're not all in the same room together. We look forward to when that happens. But we do get to have Gray at least here in part. So that's that's wonderful news. Uh, we're going to continue on now in our series, the last of the Ten Commandments that we're reading today. We're reading, I'm, I'm going to read the Deuteronomy 5, verse 21 version of this. Um, this is the last or the Tenth Commandment. And it reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And so we have a kind of shift here from actions that we've been getting in the last few, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, or bear false witness. And now, interestingly, we move to kind of a matter of the heart about something that you're doing in your heart or in your inner person. So why, why does this rise to the level of Ten Commandments? Uh, let me start with you, Dr. Sutanto, uh, as you have the larger catechism in front of you. What do, we need to, what do we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about this commandment of not coveting, of not desiring things that are not our own? Well, you're right, Scott. I think uh, this commandment really does touch on the heart. Now, the larger catechism, as we've seen throughout our time together here through the Ten Commandments have always touched upon the heart, has always rooted every single one of the commandments in the heart. So when we talked about thou not stealing, we 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 thought as well about how we should desire for the well-being of our neighbor. Now that's an affection that we had we should delight in the fact that our neighbor has property and that we should therefore not steal it as if it was our own. And so coveting is in a sense unique in that yes, it focuses mainly on the heart, but in another sense, um, every single one of the commandments have always been united together by being rooted in the heart as well. But what struck me as we we're considering this today is when we take a look at the larger catechism, it's quite brief on this commandment. When the, when the catechism asks, what are the requirements of this commandment? Its answer is that we should desire mainly full contentment with our own condition, full contentment with our own condition in such a way where we have a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor. And these two things are connected. First of all, we need to be content with what God has given us with our portion. And because we're content, when we take a look at our neighbor's property or whatever our neighbor has, we can see this with an attitude of whole soul charitable affection, a kind of um, understanding that this is our neighbor's and we can delight in it. We don't have to see this as comp competition. We don't have to see this as somehow taken away from our own well-being, but rather we can see our own frame and say, this is good. And we can see our neighbors and say, that is good and be okay with that. And that's actually incredibly difficult. I think even though this confession is incredibly brief, this larger catechism question and answer, I mean, 
Um, it's also one of the most difficult and pointed because how in the world do we do that? How do we keep content, right? Not stealing externally seems incredibly difficult, but not coveting and being happy with our neighbors, seemingly even better conditions than, than ours, I find incredibly difficult. So maybe we'll start off with that. Yeah, that's a great point. I was thinking back of our conversation when we talked about um, stealing and we talked about uh, property. And actually at that point, Tommy brought up the, the concept of stewardship and seeing our gifts as things that we are given to steward. And Gray, you, you brought up the idea that because we're finite individuals, we ought not to try to sort of gather unto ourselves all the riches of the world or something, but rather be content. And that kind of stands behind this idea of not stealing and you know, being content with what the Lord has given us. And in doing that, we're acknowledging our creatureliness, right? And I thought it's interesting, isn't it, that this, the, the, this idea of coveting really is kind of step one of which step two is stealing in many ways, right? And it's getting at this idea of recognizing that God is the God from whom all blessings flow. And as we enjoy our gifts, we enjoy them as gifts, as what they are, gifts to be stewarded. And yet, as we also see those, we, we see others enjoying gifts, we realize it's not like some kind of zero-sum game. I like how you put that, that it's not, you know, when someone else benefits, it's not meaning that I, therefore, am lacking mm -hmm. because of their benefit. Yeah. It's, and it's it, interesting uh, that you, you've you got, you, you connected it to, the, to stealing, Scott, but then you could also connect it to yeah, it's, this is step one and, and step two is is stealing. Well, this is step one and step two is adultery. Yeah. Um, you, and you could connect it up to thou shalt not murder as well. James does precisely that in James four. <laughs> why why do you murder? It's because you have an adulterous heart. Um, I wonder, yeah, I, I guess when we, when we when you first read this commandment, my my the thought went through my head, isn't this in some ways uh, based upon, since, since we've already talked about the heart so many times over the course of the last several weeks, isn't this a little bit redundant? <laughs> you know, what are we going to say about this? Because we've already talked about coveting um, so many times in the midst of talking about all of the, the other commandments. Yeah, and I, I, you're exactly right there, Tommy, that, that really coveting is almost like it's the, the, the fulcrum or the center foundation that identifies the heart motivation behind all of the other commandments. You mentioned there that, that really this could be the step one to behind adultery, behind murder, because really what might motivate your hatred for your brother that leads to murder? Maybe it is coveting, the fact that they have something that you don't, the fact that you think that you should have the life that they have, or maybe that they have um, a spouse that you don't have. And so the coveting really does lie underneath all of it. And it leads me, I think, to consideration of the Sermon on the Mount. In some ways, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is connecting this 10th commandment to all the other commandments. Because all the Pharisees almost like they were isolating all the 10 commandments from this, this particular commandment. The Pharisees were thinking about the externalities mm, yeah. without actually realizing that the 10th commandment is an internal reality and it's an internal reality that gets underneath all of it and and the pharisees missed that jesus therefore said you know whoever cleans the outside of the cup but ignores the inside is missing the point it's not what you eat that makes you dirty but it's actually what comes out of your heart that makes you dirty and so this 10 commandment again is something that almost maybe didn't even enter the pharisaical vision mm. and they, they isolated all the others from this one well in, in some respects it makes sense that it, it doesn't enter the pharisaical mindset because how how do you the other problem with this commandment how do you enforce it 
from a from a legal standpoint or a judicial standpoint, you know, you think about these as commandments, not just for our own life, but commandments that are to guide and direct Israel. I'm going to kick this to the Old Testament department here, but you know, as as national laws, the tenth commandment is not enforceable. Like, and I wonder to what extent it's even precedented in other, you know, ancient legal codes. Do they address the heart? And and if if so, how does one kind of externalize that? So, in a Pharisaical mindset, where your your focus is on the the externals and and obedience for the sake of obedience this this doesn't compute in some ways yeah doesn't it communicate though that really the purpose of the law is to show that god is the judge of the heart and only god knows the heart and ultimately the law points back to god as a lawgiver and so again the pharisaical mindset of they were the ones being kind of the policemen of the ethics of other people's lives misses the fact that they too are under god's judgment and that they don't have the kind of epistemic jurisdiction, so to speak, to speak into the hearts of other people. Because this particular commandment shows that everyone's kind of flattened under the eyes of God's judgment, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There is a kind of order here. You know, we, we've talked about this already, that you have these first set of laws that are dealing with our relationship to God. And then the second set of the laws, you know, kind of depending on where you put honoring your father and mother, because that's kind of a segue uh, sort of serving like a Janus function or something, looking back and forward in the laws. But if you go to the first commandment, you really, again, have one that's dealing with the heart. It's saying, have no other gods before me. That's something, again, you know, you can police it by its expressions, but you don't know if someone has another God before the Lord in their heart. And then you have an unpacking of what that would look like. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't make carved images, observe the Sabbath day. And then what's interesting is that order is kind of reversed in the second set where you have these more societal rules like murder, committing adultery, stealing, and bearing false witness. And those are all the expressions of which, you know, as you pointed out, Tommy, you now get kind of the underlying meta-ethic, right? And the meta-ethic there, the, 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 the underlying value is contentment. Uh, not not being envious, not coveting. And there's kind of a structure there of general to particular, you know, to, uh, commandment one up to commandment four or so, and then particular back out to general for the second set of commandments. And all of this, I think, is, is it's good to say, it's good to point out that when Jesus is asked, okay, so give me the summary of the law, he, he says it's just basically this inner to outer order. You know, the heart has to be set right. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And then that means that your person, that your your yourself will be established. And then as a result, your strength or the things that you're doing out there in the world will find expression too. So even the Old Testament law was never just about commands or like doing uh, specific things or kind of specific ethical behavior, but it had this kind of broader meta-ethical angle to it right? That it had to do with the heart and the value structures within the, within the person. That's right. It's a good question you raised about ancient Near Eastern law codes. And as you said that, I thought, gosh, I don't remember that in Hammurabi and I don't remember that in the other, but it'd be interesting to go check. I don't think, I think they're all outward expressions, but I would want to go back and check. It's been a while since I kind of sat down with that. We had to be able to cite, we had to be able to cite read Hammurabi to pass our uh, Akkadian 
um, comprehensive exams, but it's it's been a long time since then. And it also does raise a question that we brought up before with these law codes. It's hard to know how these were actually applied. Right. You know, were, the, were there ever court cases where someone pulled out the, the stele and said, well, here it says this, this, and this, and we don't have evidence of that. Of course, we do with the Bible, though. We do have these, these covenantal lawyers of the prophets who are applying the covenants into the life of Israel and holding them accountable. But again, it's from God's perspective, so it definitely deals with the heart and deals with the inner person. Scott, I really feel like uh, you let me down there. I was hoping that you would say something definitive and authoritative on the <laughs> internet about multiple thousand-year-old documents. I'm sorry. I, you know. But then you pulled it up with like, we had to sight read Hammurabi. So yeah, that's, that, that, that was my, did you, did you notice that? That was my cover. <laughs> I wonder if Paul wants to say something. Paul, did you have to sight read Hammurabi? No, I just think it's, I was thinking about a lot of things while you guys were sharing. I, it's interesting. Let's assume that Paul is the speaker in Romans 7. And then if you compare Romans 7 with Philippians 3, where in Philippians 3, basically Paul says, you know, I was guiltless. You know, I kept the law perfectly. But then in Romans 7, he uses the commandment uh, not to covet as a way to, you know, uh, view his wickedness, right? And so, you know, there's a way where we can be, as you have all uh, noted, we can be religious. We can keep all the laws superficially, but God points us uh, more deeply into the heart. And it's this um, you know, commandment not to covet that's so difficult. Um, I think it was Bill Davis, and we, we've already touched on this, but he's saying it's not merely negative and um, like where we don't covet but we rejoice when someone else has, you know, something or someone good, right? And um, the absence of that rejoicing over other people, I think is very telling that there's something defective in our hearts. Like, why are we not happy uh, for someone else? You know, why is it that we are only happy if we also possess that thing or if we have something better? And, you know, that's, I think, so helpful in terms of probing and understanding the human heart. Yeah, Paul, I was thinking about your sermon over on Sunday because I visited Paul's church for the first time. He was talking about the creator. Was that? I was just, I was just yipping. He was, Sorry. He, I think that was a yeet. So, yeah, I was like, what was that? <laughs> well. Um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought now. Uh yeah, right. So, so Paul is preaching about the creator-creature distinction. And, and I wonder if, if part of that is that we want to be the center of attention, which means that we want to have all of the glory given to us, which is, again, another way of subverting the creator-creature distinction. Part of the reason why we can't be happy for other people is because we think that we should be the ones who gets all of the glory and that there should be no sharing of that glory to anyone else. When really, if we give all glory back to God, when other people receive uh, blessings and praises. We can understand that that gives glory back to God as well. And suddenly we can rejoice in the other people's good if we point them back to the giver of all good, which is God himself. And I love the passage that Paul brought up there with, with uh, Romans 7. And, and you know, because Paul said, you know, says there, I would not have known what the law is had the law said, thou shalt not covet, right? And it it's so interesting because there's a 
on the one hand, Paul is using this as a kind of an example in a broader point. The broader point is the law, the law, because of our sinful hearts, actually causes us to sin. So it's sort of this logical step in a broader law in a broader argument that Paul's making. But at the same time, there's huge hermeneutical implications there. Like what that tells me is it, it's actually showing me that coveting is uh is only discernible as a as a commandment because God has told me. Like I it, it says something about how I know what I know and it says something about how I'm supposed to interpret all of the commandments, which I think is what we're getting at is yeah, the commandments are not these sort of superficial laws that we're supposed to obey. They go to the core of who we are, our relationship with God and one another, and direct us in the entire course of our life in a way that just individual laws don't. They, they are more than just a legal code. They're a, a moral course or way of life for the, the entirety of not only myself, but society, the church, etc., which speaks back again, Tommy, to that sort of epistemic centrality of this particular commandment. You know, I've heard I've heard tropes in preaching where people say, you know, we talk a lot about adultery, but we never really talk about stealing or lying as part of God's commandments. But as I, as I was thinking about it, we do, I think, especially as Protestants, talk a lot about coveting. And because coveting is sort of the central core of all the commandments, we do, I think, get at every single one of the commandments through discussing this, this idea of coveting, because again, the essence of adultery really comes back to coveting, the essence of maybe even killing and definitely stealing comes back to coveting, because Protestants are very good at, I think, rooting everything back in the heart, right? Um, think about the way in which Herman Boving dis distinguishes between Protestantism and, and Catholicism. One of the ways he distinguishes it is that Protestantism is sensitive to the affections of the heart in a way that perhaps mere exercises of rituality may miss. Um, not that he wasn't interested in ritual theology, but, but that was one of the ways in which he was attentive to the Protestant Catholic distinction. You know, it's, um, I think one of the best ways to help people see um, how they violate the 10th commandment is, uh, you know, their obsession with social media. So like, if you think about people who just are tracking Instagram and Facebook and all of the above, and granted this is a generalization, I, I don't think it's always, hey, I wanna see what's going on in people's lives because I'm happy for them. And I, oh, I just saw them go on this great vacation and, and I rejoice <laughs> that they are able to do this when I can, right? I think that when people are tracking social media, it, it's interesting to ask at this point what's going on on the level of the heart. Like, am I, you know, am I wanting a perfect family as, you know, social media tends to present? Um, am I really just happy that this person was able to afford a vacation that I can, right? And so, I don't know, I just think that would be sort of interesting exercise um, as to uh, connecting, coveting, and our fixation with social media. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of, of, of FOMO, right, the fear of missing out is really the problem of coveting in many ways. All right, so let me let me ask this since we're getting down now to kind of practical applications. The criticism back would say, yes, you know, this, this is kind of Nietzsche's criticism, right, of Christianity. Uh, right, and so your religion teaches you to be happy with the status quo. The spirit of contentment creates a spirit of complacency or lethargy. 
And that's why it's so good at keeping people in their place. It's such a powerful religion for undermining uh, individual individual desire and drive. You know, how, how do we answer that criticism? How do we respond to this um, you know, this call in the scriptures to not covet, to be content, to see what you have as, a, as something to be stewarded, but to be content with that thing? How do we push back against the charge that says, well, yeah, that's just going to make you guys a bunch of suckers. Then. Mm. You're going to be the ones who get powered over uh, in, in the great conflicts of life. Yeah. In other words, is there a contradiction between godly contentment and godly ambition? Which is a question I hear a lot when I was a pastor at Covenant City Church in Jakarta, especially for finance folks who are very driven um, and lawyers, especially. Um, <clears throat> what do you all think about this, especially the real pastor? Well, before Tommy speaks, um, I'll just add my uh, two cents. I think it's a great question. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, I think he's the one that said, you know, if you aim directly for something, you usually don't get it. But then if you're pursuing something else, the uh, outcome comes almost as a byproduct, you know? And so he has this great example. If all you want is friends and you obsess over it, ironically, you never have friends. Mm -hmm. But if you aim to be loving, you end up, having many friends as a sort of a byproduct for it. And I think the ethic in the Bible is not <clears throat> personal ambition. Like, okay, so this person has a nice house. I want a nice house, so I'm gonna work hard, right? I think instead the Bible does say, whatever you do in life, do with all your heart as unto the Lord, right? And when you make that your focus, instead of being driven by covenant, uh, a lot of times you're, you might say your situation in life does improve, right? And so I don't think that, you know, they, they're necessarily related in that, sort, in that way. Like, okay, if, I, if I'm not uh, covening, then I should be content. And then people take that to mean, then I shouldn't work hard. The Bible is like rich and big enough where it says, no, you should work hard and you should also be able to enjoy the fruit of your labor. But as we've been discussing the motivation should not be so that I can have what other people have or so that I can beat what, you know, other people. So that's how I've processed this. Yeah. And I think on the just level of justice and society and things like that, we could say, you know, I could see Nietzsche's criticism there from if, if all we had was this isolated commandment, but of course that commandment has to be interpreted within the broader biblical theological tradition. And I actually, I think he doesn't, it doesn't go deep enough. His understanding doesn't go deep enough. It, because the, uh, because of contentment, I'm not just, uh, it, contentment doesn't make me content with the status quo per se. Contentment frees me up to give sacrificially. It's, be, it's because of my relationship, uh, you know, my, because my treasures are in heaven, because my citizenship is, is, is in glory that I am able to use what God has given me, not hoarding it unto myself, not protecting it, but able to use it for the good of others. Uh, and, and that's the, the Christian social vision isn't uh, tearing down walls and casting out those in power that that's what God does. That's God's justice. And, and we wait for him to do those kinds of things. The Christian social social action is giving sacrificially to benefit my neighbor. Yeah, what, what you both are saying is, is really an Augustinian vision, again, of right the order desire, isn't it? That if you have an ambition for God's glory to spread, um, 
all of these other sort of blessings become byproducts and you do actually end up enjoying uh, while well, using these things to to enjoy God, and by enjoying God, you gain more of these things to use to enjoy God. If that makes sense. And the rule is applied across the board. I mean, that's also the beauty of this creator-creature distinction. There's no there's no hierarchy in terms of how you apply the laws. So if you are using the Ten Commandments in order to exploit others, which was done, has been done in, the, in this country's history, right? To use biblical ethics to exploit others and to get others to do what you want and then tell them, can't you just be content with your status in life? Mm -hmm. You know, um, whether you're a Southern Presbyterian doing that in the 19th century, um, you know, or, or just a kind of, you know, well-meaning, uh, you know, well-meaning evangelical who is, uh, you know, being willfully neglectful of their neighbor you know, you can use those laws, but I think what the Ten Commandments is telling us is that since these are applied across the board, then you're now guilty of an infraction. You know, if you're using someone else and exploiting another person and oppressing them for your own particular gain, and you're saying, well, I'm content with this situation, you're basically committing the sin that Isaiah is calling out Israel for. Then, you know, Isaiah 58, where they're, they're celebrating their fast, and he says, well, because you forced a fast on the poor in the cities, your fast to me is not one of worship now, but it's treated as a, it's a fast of judgment. It's going to be bringing judgment on your head um, because of how you've broken the commands. You know, so there's a protection here, I think, for the exploited that Nietzsche and those other kind of models of um, sort of social Darwinism can't really support uh, because for them at the end of the day to oppress is good. Right. And to and to power over the weak is a good thing because that's the natural order of things. And so we have a protection here because it does actually constrain even the powerful, I think, in uh, in, in, in their in their exploitation and their oppression. Right. And I think there is a sense in which we've got to remind ourselves that God commands us to be content. And so in a sense, it is not our task to tell others to be content. But God tells us to be content, but or rather, you know, the, the commandment to us is be a blessing to other people. So when we see someone in suffering or someone who's being oppressed, our job is not to tell them to be content because God tells us to do that. Our job is to obey God ourselves and be content with our position in such a way where we can be a benefit to other people, where we can actually give them um, that, that, that blessing as well. It reminds me of a wedding sermon I heard once from our pastor in, in Jakarta as well, where he said that, you know, when the Bible tells wives to submit to husbands, we got to remind ourselves that it is not the husband who has to command the wife to submit to him, but rather it is God that tells her to do that. And the husband's job is not to tell the wife to submit. The husband's job is to sacrifice themselves in leadership for the wife. And that's such a good reminder, I think, because we can use these commandments and, and think that it is our job to command other people with God's commands when it's really God that commands. Amen. All right. Well, with with Gray's drop mic there at the end, let's wrap up this conversation. We'll have one more on the series of uh, the series covering the Ten Commandments, where we're going to actually reflect on. Okay, so now as Christians, and we have an understanding of what the law requires of man, what duties God requires of man. Um, how do we understand this now in light of the person, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ? And so we're going to come back 
again and have that conversation. We look forward to being all back together in the flesh. For everyone listening to us, thanks for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to being with you next time. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever good podcasts are found. If you'd like to know more about Reform Theological Seminary, come check us out online at rts.edu forward slash Washington. If you'd like to pose a question to the faculty to consider in a future episode, please go to the show notes. You'll see that there's a link there where you can come and um, not only come over to our website and learn more about RTS, but you can also pose a question to the faculty podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us. Until next time, take care. I think that was the best ever ending, Scott. And uh, <laughs> I, I think it's, it bodes well for 2022. Amen. If not for everything going on outside of this building right now. Yes, <laughs> things are boding well for 2022. I was driving down the street today. and It was literally like a, you know, Grace, yeah. it's like a whiteout. Cars yeah, are yeah. sliding all over. And I thought, this is, this is my first, this is our first day back in 2020. <laughs> this is great.